Listener Production. I don't want to say people lose their jobs any more than, than you do, but I think inflation is a much bigger beast than unemployment because inflation might have really terribly impacted 30 to 40% of people versus the 3% change in unemployment. That's a lot less than 30%. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer and the host of The Good Oil. Now, hopefully you've been listening for a while by now, but if you haven't, if you are brand new, when you give someone The Good Oil, You give them the good stuff, the real stuff, and the important stuff. That's what we try and do on this podcast. We speak to the entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on, and the people who make things happen. Today's guest should be familiar to you if you've had a chance to go back through the archives or if you've been listening for a while. This time last year, give or take, we spoke to the CEO and co-founder of Luxury Escapes, Adam Schwab, and I'm very delighted to say he's rejoined me today. G'day, Adam. G'day, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Mate, thank you for uh, spending some time with us. Mate, it's been a heck of a year. That's something we've been able to say for quite a few years now, mate. There was a, a time in investing when uh, things weren't that exciting. You know, up until 2019, uh, yeah, things always change, things always happen, but you didn't have to allow for it all that much. And then, of course, as we spoke uh, last year, uh, a lot has changed. And we're kind of still dealing with the output of that. Not only are we trying to work out what's happening with the the kind of the side effects or the after effects or the echoes of, of COVID itself, uh, but we're also dealing, of course, with the economic circumstances that were kind of you know, set in train at the time. Uh, inflation, obviously the, the big one, partly because of COVID, partly for other factors. But we're kind of back now in a really interesting part and a different, interesting point in time. So I just want to have a chat to you, I suppose, about, firstly, we'll talk about your business because that's, what, uh, that's what's more important to you. Uh, but then I also want to just hear a little bit more from your perspective about how you're seeing uh, things panning out, what's been happening, what's happening now, and maybe uh, a sense because you are at the coalface, mate, of, of what the future looks like, particularly in travel, which is which is your baby. So mate, maybe maybe I'll just get you to kick us off with, um, you know, the the year since. Uh, how's luxury escapes business changed, evolved, grown over that that last twelve months? Yeah, it's been a really interesting year. So late this time last year was actually still quite COVID impacted in some way. So whilst there wasn't lockdowns or anything like that, people hadn't quite. Or, some people hadn't quite gotten normality back in their travel planning and, and traveling. So even like October, November, December last year were actually quite subdued for us, much more than we expected them to be. There was still, I, th- I think it was maybe, there was some sort of COVID strain around, even though people weren't sort of really being knocked down by it. People were still a little bit scared to travel. There was obviously sky high airfares. We can talk about that more in a second. They have to, a, to an extent, moderated, uh, not across the board, but certainly to an extent. As of January, as if somebody really flicked a switch, in more in terms of the psyche of really Australian travellers who, who are probably four-fifths four fifths of our business. And as soon as that January this year, so-called uh, 10 months ago, came around, this, the willingness to travel and to book travel completely changed. And we saw a, a step change in January. And it's been very consistent this year, which is unusually we're quite a transactional business that's quite a lot of seasonality in the business, but it's been actually very consistent. We've had slightly better and slightly worse months, but generally very consistent and probably we're we're trading at about two and a half times pre-COVID levels with a much higher cost base of a lot more people, but it is uh, significantly higher revenue as well as significantly higher higher cost. And that's, that's pretty much the case for most travel businesses. You see flights and had a great result. 
a few months ago. Hello World had a fantastic result a few months ago. Webjet's flying, one of the best run travel businesses in Australia. So most travel businesses are doing, doing relatively well at the moment. Obviously, the big airlines as well, unquestionably doing very well. Yeah, a big fan. A big fan of some of those companies you mentioned, and particularly I agree with you on Webjet, very, very well-run business. Mate, um, I mean, it's, it's hard to talk about the cyclical impacts of a business that's growing so strongly. So firstly, obviously, congratulations, and I'm glad to see Luxury Escapes is doing doing really nicely. Um, uh, let's go back to, to January. You talk about that, the January effect. D- d- is it, I mean, I, my speculation would simply be, you know, we humans love a, a fresh page, right? The idea of New Year, we have, of course, news resolutions, everything else. Do you think it literally was a case of people saying, okay, well, at least we put last year behind us, this year's a new year, and in the absence of any of those, as you say, new strains or new health concerns, it was a case of people being able to sort of literally flick a, a mental switch and, and move on with their lives? I think you're probably right. I, I, the answer is I don't know, uh, but I think what you, you what you just suggested is, is the most likely result. So I think generally January is the best month for travel bookings historically in Australia always. And, and it's different in different countries. So in, in the UK, October is a big month, et cetera, et cetera. So every, every country tends to have that seasonally good good month. Australia, and you ask every travel business, January slash early February is their best month. People come back from that long holiday for the four weeks off and they want to book the holiday. I mean, think about Australian school holidays. And even if people aren't traveling in school holidays, you still tend to book at this time. You've got school holidays and call it March, April, June, July, September. And people tend to lock in at least the first two school holidays trips in that January, February period, and sometimes September as well. So it is a seasonal time travel. So people are planning. And I think there was certainly the older generation, and not necessarily older people, call it, call it 55 plus, that, that generation, who are a bit more uh, probably impacted by COVID, uh, given obviously COVID did impact older people more. That, that were the last, we felt the last people to come back. And it's not, it wasn't across the board and making a bit of a generalization, but largely speaking, it was the sort of 65, 70 pluses that were the last to come on. Probably our classic customer, plenty of money, lots of time, can travel outside those peak periods. That's a great luxury escape customer, not having to rely on dependents, et cetera. And we can talk about them more in a second financially. But I think that cohort sort of realized COVID wasn't a particularly big risk for them, uh, especially post-vaccine. So as a result of that, We've seen really normality come throughout the cohorts of all ages. So pre that, we were seeing increased bookings from call it the 45 under, who are obviously less impacted by COVID because it didn't impact younger people from a health sense. So it wasn't worrying. And after that, it's taken a bit, took a bit longer. And probably from January, February, it was really normalized through all age cohorts. That's fascinating. Uh, we do hear too from some of the airlines that uh, corporate travellers are actually some of the last to go back to work. Now, obviously, you're not in the you're, you're in the in the uh, the luxury and uh, and kind of consumer space rather than corporate. But is there anything you're seeing around the who? So you're talking about age cohorts, um, whether it's directly with your business or others. Is is that kind of still the idea that maybe we're, we're back for leisure, but not necessarily as as back uh, as as we were in the past for business? We're actually opening a corporate business. Uh, incidentally, but nice. hasn't started yet. But no, I actually think corporate is, is if you look at flights and says corporate results, corporate travel management results, they're basically similar to, if not better than pre-COVID on a total transaction value basis. So obviously there's a bit of dilution in certainly in flighty share price, but revenue, I think revenue sales wise, flights is on track for 24 billion, I think next year or even more. And that was more than pre-COVID or, or very similar. So, and that's with two-thirds of the store's gone. So I think in many ways, flighties are doing an incredible job. Corporate travel management seems to keep on keeping on. There's a lot of doubters about that business, but it's, they don't compete with us, certainly at the moment, and they're much bigger than us. Uh, there's obviously some issues with them in the UK and that that floating barge that's effectively a prison cell for, for refugees. But taking that controversy aside, 
I've always got, I'm not the investment genius you are, but I've, I've got continued questions over corporate travel management, less, much, much less over flight center, which I think is just a gen, more genuine business. Uh, but both of them seem to be trading pretty well. Let me, uh, I, to the extent you want to, mate, here's, here's a chance to, uh, to give a plug to your, your corporate business. What's the, uh, have you, have you said much publicly about the plans or what, do you want to share anything with our listeners? I'm happy to share. We're literally just launching it in the next few weeks called LE Business Traveler. And it's really targeted at sort of small, medium businesses, probably less so the enterprise who have existing to call it hotel relationships locked in. Uh, and we're less interested in that, which is more the, again, the flights into corporate travel management domain. But fairly for small business, small medium businesses, we've got a fantastic solution. One of the things we've built is a way to really align your team with the owners. So one thing that uh, me as a business owner has always been frustrated by is when your staff go and take fully flexible flights or fly at 8.30 because it suits them better and it costs you a hundred bucks more. Uh, and it's really hard to well, you can, you can police it by literally approving everything. That creates a, a, a very hostile, acrimonious environment with, with the team. So what we've built is a, a really interesting way for, for businesses to incentivize employees to spend less. So essentially, you set a budget. So it could be you're coming down to, to Melbourne and, and we think the budget's $1,000 based on average airfares and, and one-night accommodation. And if you're able to use your own frequent flyer points or, and drive to the airport or get a lift to the airport and say to mates, house, whatever you do, and you spend 200 bucks, the business can then suggest a, a rebate essentially going back to the traveler. So you could say, set it at, say, 50%, which is the amount we suggest. That, and the person who saved the business 800 bucks gets half that, 400 bucks. The business gets 400 bucks. So it creates a real win. So turning a situation which is really acrimonious and, and not great to one where the business is really happy and the staff member is really happy. So it created a really nice, a nice alignment. Mate, that is, I've long thought that uh, not in travel directly. You're obviously smarter than me, and on the on the front foot of that one. But that idea of, as you say, uh, being able to incentivize someone to help save the business money and maybe get something out of it at the same time is just, you know, alignment of incentives. You know, as, as Charlie Munger would say, uh, never think about anything else. You should be thinking about incentives. Uh, I, I think it's, it's really smart. So I'll look forward to see that coming out. Well, I'll um, keep a keep an eye out for that. Maybe we can talk about that another time. Let's go back to then. So we talked about January. We talked about the the flick switch and and maybe the different cohorts coming back at different times, and we kind of had all hoped, I think, to some degree, uh, that things were going to improve. Now, when we spoke last year, it turns out we're about halfway through, roughly, uh, the, the the increases, the, the range of increases from the RBA. Now, we're recording this on the 13th of October. Let's date stamp it because we don't know what's coming next, although I might ask your uh, your, your speculations. As as that has continued, as the um, inflation continues to bite, because of course, that's a compounding factor and prices, even if inflation falls, never go back. They stay at the elevated levels. At the same time, you've got a lot of people... Um, I assume some proportion of your your customers, and certainly just generally in the in the economy, people paying more for their mortgages, rents going through the roof as well. It's it's been a tough year. We kind of had hoped to escape COVID as a pandemic, and then get into clear waters. As I kind of alluded to at the top, we then sailed into high inflation, high rates, and so that kind of kicker of the health crisis is behind us. But all of a sudden now we've got to deal with the economic after effects and not just of COVID, but a whole lot of, you know, perfect storm factors at the same time. How have you seen then this year continue to evolve uh, both broadly in the economy? Because I know you, you obviously read widely, you speak to a lot of people and, and then obviously for, for luxury escapes as well. A couple of points I think are relevant there. And it's, it's a good question. So I think the first point is interest rates in Australia, despite people claiming how high they are and the, and the complaints of interest rates, we're still at negative real interest rates. US is at 
slightly positive at 2% if you look at the 10-year bond rate and a bit less if you look at the the Fed rate, but it's at least a positive real rate. In Australia, I think we're negative two, negative two and a half, maybe. I think it's 7% inflation. Uh, and that's remember, this is inflation off a higher base because it's been inflation for a number of a number of months, a number of quarters. So we're still running a highly accommodative monetary policy. And for anybody who's saying, oh, interest rates are higher for longer, or interest rates actually aren't high at all. Interest rates are negative. So I think that's a, uh, often forgotten. Uh, your point on rental stress and, and cost of living is, is right. Cost of living, I think, is less about interest rates. I think more about the fact that the government printed so much. I'm using the word printed in the wrong sense, but you use my, you get my point. The government created so much money through the, even the RBA with the bank the discounted interest rates for banks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody forgets about $300 billion plus of money that gets sloshed around the economy. As inflation is, the definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. So we're seeing the classic example of that, and I won't get into a detailed discussion on what I thought of the COVID policies. I actually saw Josh Frydenberg speak last night, and we, we disagree. I like Josh, he's a fantastic guy, but we disagree on a lot of stuff. Um, but, but ultimately, we have a situation where there's too much cash, and that cash hasn't fallen equally. So... Fortunately for Luxury Escapes, our customer has benefited in multiple ways. One, when there's inflation, generally the wealthier people in the economy benefit, and our customer is, is probably slightly wealthier. Just the fact that anybody who can travel is, is probably slightly wealthy, let alone we sell a slightly higher at four-star plus, five-star, six-star. So we gen- generally, the rich has gotten richer uh, through COVID and post-COVID, and moreover, inter- higher interest rates are terrible for a cohort of the population, be it those with, with mortgages, uh, which is... I'm going to say, what, 35 to 40% maybe of households, maybe less, because obviously not everyone who has a house have a mortgage. 67% of people have houses, and they call it half of them have mortgages that are significant. So for the other 60% of our, or call it 10, 20% of our customers, so the 40% of households that are up for grabs still have, call it, call it a million bucks in the bank, suddenly you're getting 50, 55 grand on that. You weren't getting that, obviously, for the last eight years, really, because of the RBA's ham-fisted monetary policy. So as a result of of that, we're now seeing people with more cash. And that's when you see this two-speed economy, you see why you go, you walk through Chadston and it's people everywhere and people are spending and shopping and there's queues outside Louis Vuitton and there's queues outside Luxury Escapes or whatever. We're, we've been a significant beneficiary of the somewhat normalization of interest rates. I say, they're not normal. We're still negative. Uh, let's be sure. In my view, interest rates should be seven or eight percent if we actually are really concerned about inflation. And I say that from perspective that inflation harms the poorest people in society. So if we want to keep harming the poorest people, let's keep interest rates below the real normal rate they should be. And if we want to keep rewarding the rich, keep them as they are. But if we actually do care about people who are most vulnerable, we need to fix this interest rate situation. Let me take that tangent from you if, if, if I can, because let me be devil's advocate for a second. Rates at 7 or 8% help, oh yeah, don't, don't necessarily harm the poor directly or the poorest directly. Um, but I also don't imagine at that sort of interest rate we escape a recession and those who have less uh, certain employment uh, tend to lose their jobs reasonably quickly. My fear has always been that while you're right on, the, on a first order level, the second order impact of guess who loses their jobs, it's not going to be necessarily the wealthy. Uh, they've got plenty of money. If they do, they've got plenty of money to, to live on. Uh, when unemployment goes to 5 8 10%, as a result of rates of 7 or 8%, and again, you can uh, feel free to disagree with the assumptions, um, that that second order impact is a whole lot of people lose their jobs and, and they get whacked either way, um, which is you know a part of the unfairness of the system. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't, if, you, if you're one of the poorer members of society. Do you, do you buy that reasoning, mate? Or do you think there's a, a, another way through that? 
I think that's right on a second order effect level. I think there's a third order effect though. So, okay, yeah. And if you look at the Tim Gurner comments from about a month ago, and Tim got slapped around, and probably rightfully so, because I think he was clumsy with his words, but and I think he's possibly clumsy with his intent. But the problem, so you've got two potential problems, as you said. Either you have high inflation, you have you have high unemployment. You probably have one or the other. You can have stagflation, which is the worst of both worlds, and hopefully we don't get to that. But let's assume that we have a choice between a recession with 8% unemployment or inflation of constantly 7%. And as yes, people bandy around how bad recessions are. Depressions are bad. Recessions are natural. It's a part of the economic cycle. We, we've tried to, and we say we, I'm talking about largely sort of central banks over the last 20 years really, have tried this great moderation where we just get rid of recessions, which if you believe anything in Austrian sort of monetary policy, you just simply can't do that. It's And we saw it, they tried it in 2008, they kind of got away with it in 2009, 10, 11, 12 by dropping, by printing money and dropping rates. But ultimately, I'd rather see a situation where if a couple of percent of people lose their jobs and we don't have 100% of the people suffer, or not, 90% of people suffering from high inflation. And I don't want to say people lose their jobs any more than, than you do, but I think inflation is a much bigger beast than unemployment because inflation might have really terribly impact 30 to 40% of people versus the 3% change in unemployment. That's a lot less than 30%. Let's come forward then because we're now in a situation where you've already talked about the different uh, flows of that money. Uh, the IMF was out two days before this recording saying they expect the Australian economy to grow at 1.2% next year. Uh, their previous forecast was one7 They're saying this will finish this year about one8 Now, 1.2%, uh, we mentioned population. We're talking about the fact that there'll be more, uh, the Australian population will grow by faster than the, the economy, almost certainly if that prediction does come true. I guess I'll uh, feel free to disagree with the prediction, of course, from the IMF. But it's not painting a particularly pretty picture. The best that can be said for is at least they're not forecasting a recession, but uh, there's not much of a margin of, of error with that 1.2% given how complex economies are. So they could be out by a factor either side of that of that number. Um, I guess the first thing is, what are you seeing right now, again, in your business and across the economy? As we, as we go into the last couple of months of the year, we're seeing discretionary retail down meaningfully across even some of the biggest and best retailers. JB Hi-Fi, uh, Prime is... The prime among them is the first one that comes to mind for me. Um, there is a definite, you know, pulling back of a whole lot of non-essential spending for reasons we've already just talked about. Are you seeing that with the people you're talking to with your business? Uh, how's how's the year, the end of the year, shaping up? And as we go into 2024, uh, I believe everything reverts to the mean, and the strength in our business certainly currently, I think, is part of that mean reversion. So, obviously, two years of COVID, people hadn't travelled, they they still want to travel. It was really three years of COVID in many ways. So I think we're still benefiting from that that swell of reversion to mean, as is every other travel business. I'm not sure how long it continues. I think it does continue a little while longer. Also, if you, as to my point, if you go walk around, we've got a store in Chadston now. Uh, and it, when I walked through Chadston on Thursday night, a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a function in there and there were people everywhere. It was like Christmas Eve. And this was a random Thursday night in September. So there clearly is, and I think it goes to that two-speed economy. You've got people who are sort of doing all right, who are now doing better, and people who are doing badly who are now doing worse. So it's, I think it's really split. So I think it depends on the retailer to an extent. So when you look at the one point, talk about 1.2% growth, it's probably 4% growth in some parts of the economy and negative 4% growth in other parts. And obviously you've got your population growth, which is helping that. Uh, so it's really hard to for me to give a generalized comment because I think it is so so dichotomous in the economy there. At the moment, yeah, I see strength in our markets at the moment. That could 
quite easily flip back, but at the moment it hasn't. Uh, but I can see why why the likes of JB Hi-Fi had an incredible three years during COVID, for example, are now reverting back to the mean to an extent the other way. So I don't think that's JB's been one of the great performers of in Australian business in the last two decades. So they're a great bellwether. Even JB can't be growing, and there's probably genuine underlying problems there. And we're in a slightly unique position of in travel, as with other travel businesses, we're benefiting from benefiting from the reversion to the mean benefit there. Mate, can I, I want to talk to you about that physical store. When we talked last time, I think you were just about to open or you just opened it. I, I can't quite remember. I should have gone back and had a listen. Um, obviously, you, your business is born as a as a, as an online business. You've gone into physical retail. You already mentioned the fact that flight centers you know, dropped two-thirds of their stores during uh, the worst of COVID and, and haven't reopened many at all. Um, curious as to how you see that playing out. I'll, I'll preface it with an editorial by saying, I think actually think for what it's worth, e-commerce itself is underreported right now. The trend to my mind is still pretty strongly in the right direction, albeit you've got a lot of lumps and bumps from COVID and the echoes of that and people going back to the stores and all that kind of stuff. But I guess, again, just from your experience, having a largely online business but having that store, what, what, is, what are you finding out about the way people are shopping, how they're choosing to use your services, the role of physical versus versus online, how that's working together for you guys? Yes, yeah, so we had a pop-up store when we spoke last and that was what we were opening. Uh, we, then, we then had that for a while, opened then built the permanent store essentially. So now I've got a 400 square, yeah, I think 400 square meter store in Chadston, the, probably the best travel store in the world and the, probably the best fashion mall in the world. Uh, it's an fa- amazing complex and our store is, is is pretty exceptional. So credit to the team for, for building it. It's gone really well. Uh, so we're, the store's profitable uh, and about 50% of the people who buy from us are new customers. So when you add in a, what we call a cost per acquisition, uh, that's a significant benefit on top of that as well. So it's been really successful so far. We'd love to open one up in every city. Uh, it's cognizant, obviously, there's a lot of capex. It's a, it's a very expensive fit out. Uh, it's a long process, but it's certainly on the drawing board to, to get more stores across Australia because obviously we serve all Australians and, and people overseas. So it's been really good. Uh, there's clearly a much higher basket size in store. It's upwards of seven dollars $8,000, which is 4X online. So you've got a, a better conversion rate, a much higher basket size. There's obviously got that face-to-face trust you can sit with. We can sit with our clients and spend an hour or two hours building that incredible Europe Maldives holiday and give insights they can't otherwise get even online or even over the phone, which is a big proportion of our sales as well. So it is, I'm a big believer in Omni. I think you look at Apple, possibly, I think we may have spoken about last time, Apple's retail stores are arguably the biggest unlock of shareholder value in history. Uh, it's, Apple's a US $3.5 trillion business. Hard to attribute an exact amount to the stores, but it's clearly significant from a brand perspective, from a customer experience perspective, and cl- clearly we're not Apple, but we look at what Apple's done there and we, we think it's a great example. So I'm a big believer in Omni. Uh, I think it's great to be able to speak to our customers every day in person. Uh, I'm nothing against online retail either because obviously online is the majority of our business. But if you look at online across the board, they're probably not struggling as much as they were in 2021 and 22. But you don't see any great rebound in online takeout travel for the reversion point. But look at product retail and they're still generally sort of a bit moribund. Uh, Kogan's had a nice resurgence. Their Kogan One platform is, is going really well, but they're probably the best, smartest, re- David and Ruslan are probably the two smartest retailers in, in the country. Uh, there's isolated pockets of, of obviously some of Solis brands are doing really well with Peter Alexander's doing well still, but uh, I don't see online as being sort of the great answer to, to retail's growth. I think it sort of grows as it was pre-COVID, to call it 1% a year. 
Mate, can I ask you about? I want to ask a couple of questions about that actually. So maybe if I dig a bit into it again, feel free to not answer any of these questions that are commercial in confidence. But uh, the 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 experience of uh, I was blown away by some of the numbers you talked about about you know the the spend of the average physical retail customer versus online. Do you know? Do you have a suspicion as to whether they are the same people who are just prepared to spend more because they're in 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 store, or are you reaching a different customer who would otherwise have gone to a competitor or tried to do it themselves because they're never going to do it online? Um, do, do you have a sense of kind of the, the, the way those customers are split? Is it the same person just visiting, or is it someone who's actually saying, you know what, I, I will go there because there's a store I wouldn't have done it otherwise, and I've got more to spend? What, how's that kind of netting out for you? It's a really good question. I think the answer is yes and yes uh, in the sense that. It's a bit causation correlation. So I think if you're if you're wanting to a much more if you want a simple trip if you want to go to the Gold Coast from Melbourne, and you want to stay at SeaWorld for five nights and buy our incredible SeaWorld deal, which was the best selling deal in history, still with I think we sold forty five thousand room nights back in two thousand and fifteen, in two weeks, probably for good reason because such an incredible experience. But if you want to do that, it's an easy purchase. You can buy it online in, in probably a minute. It's really easy. If you want to do a ten stop Europe trip. Uh, with air and experiences and lounge passes and transfers and literally probably 40 different products. It is the kind of thing that does lend itself to coming into a store just because you can take more time and, and get more expertise. So there is a bit of a, uh, he would do that, wouldn't he? Because it makes more sense if you're spending more to come in. Uh, but there also an element is when you're in, in front of somebody, we can actually sell more stuff because we can explain it better and give you the rationale as to why you should do it. So I think there's a combination that you can always convert more highly and have a higher higher basket in person, uh, but also someone who's likely to have a higher basket is more likely to come in in person as well. So I think it's sort of people's. If you, it's a simple transaction, you'll jump online and do it. You can jump on your app and buy. I've I've bought on our site in under a minute. It's, it's very easy. It's a couple of clicks and you're done. Uh, and even if you're not super, super computer literate, it's really easy. Uh, and if you're maybe less computer literate, uh, you can call up. And if you want to do something, build something more complex, people tend to come in. So, And Fly Centre, for all people have criticised it over the last 10 years, is still an inc- incredible business. It turns over $24 billion. There aren't many businesses in Australia that turn over $24 billion. It'd be, I reckon, maybe 10. Um, so Screw is not only one of the nicest guys, but one of the gr- greatest Australian businessmen. He's been able to reinvent himself constantly. And the notion that travel in store is dead. And whilst flight is a competitor of ours, notionally, you've got, we've got a huge amount of respect for, for them. And the fact that they're constantly be able to rejuvenate the business has been remarkable. It's pretty impressive. Can, can I, um, yeah, look, I'm a, a massive fan. I, uh, we have recommended uh, Flight Center before. It was a major recommendation of ours. I own shares in corporate travel and Kogan, by the way. So I was uh, happy to hear you speak nicely. I, I, you'd think you're right about Rosalind and David. They are, they are very, very good retailers. And just uh, that, that takes me, mate, I guess, to the question you're, you're an entrepreneur first uh, and then you're a travel retailer second. I would, I would argue. You may disagree. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, I am curious how you've had to go about. I don't know if it's easier or harder to go from a, from a, a, an online retail business, uh, even travel retail, then to physical or go physical to digital. On one hand, I can imagine it's easier to stand up a website if you already know what you're doing. On the other hand, uh, in-store retail takes a, takes a bit of effort and a bit of, a bit of it's just a different way of working. How have you gone about personally uh, taking luxury escapes into physical retail and, and trying to keep the things that work, uh, learn learn the things that you, you don't currently do or didn't currently do or previously do? Think about things like, as you say, cost of acquisition of a customer, much easier, generally speaking, to do online. There's a bit of uh, a bit of guesstimate and averaging, but that I mean, they are they're not altogether different, but they're not all that similar either. How's that process been for you? I think it's probably easier to go from online to in store, uh, maybe Screw will say something different. That, that's just my view. I think, I think online's probably harder. Uh, it's a bit more commoditized, a bit more competitive. 
uh, it's hard to build. Like there's the, the, the graveyard of people trying online businesses is is extensive. Uh, it's even the great, not well, sorry, there's some really good businesses like Adore Beauty, sort of high pages, I think uh, uh, Airtasker. These are some really good Australian online businesses are all sort of sub a hundred million now in terms of market valuation. So uh, even Kogan's so was doing well at 500. It, it, it's still not as big as many of the offline retailers, despite being best in class. So it's, and if you look, Catch, since Gabby and Hezzy, who are obviously great friends of mine and shareholders in our business, uh, they sold Catch of the Day to West Farmers and it's for $233 million and it lost, I think, $200 million last year alone. So this has been, again, probably one of the worst acquisitions of all time. So online retail is incredibly hard. Uh, online product retail is even harder. Travel is probably a little bit easier. It's virtual. Uh, so I think online retail is super hard. I think going from online to offline, to me, is an easier, obviously there's CapEx involved, but I think it's a much easier route than the other way. And how did you think about success, mate? How, how did you take some of those online metrics uh, and either, either use them in physical retail or, or ignore them or change what you did, change the way you measured success? As you say, that CapEx, I mean, there's CapEx behind online business, obviously, and I'm sure you spent a, a small fortune on the site, which is, by the way, I will give you a wrap, mate, very, very, very easy to use. It's just super user-friendly. It's one of those, it's an amazing thing when you see a business website designed by people who just get it. Uh, you look at it and go, oh man, that's that's simple and easy, as you say. I haven't I haven't bought from you yet, but uh, one day we'll get you. Exactly, exactly. I'm, I uh, well, just just quietly, I've got the page open. I'm going back to it as soon as we finish this recording. So <laughs> you never know. You might get me this afternoon. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, how how is you know how have you thought about the way to measure? Physical retail success, uh, investments, returns compared to online. We're a bit old school. We, we just want to make EBITDA, and we want to make profit off whatever we do. So whether it's online or offline. So beauty of an online, an, an offline store is, we can very easily look at how much money the store is making. It's, it's got its own P and L. It's a little bit more complex in the sense that our, and this is, I guess, a lucky thing that we have as an online business. We use we've we've got a fairly big call center, all Australian based. So if you call Luxury Escapes twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, you'll speak to someone who's, who's sitting in Melbourne or Sydney or, or sometimes in Queensland. Uh, so what we've done is we have people in the store who are answering our customers calling from the website. And when the store gets busy, they come out to the store and vice versa. We, we tend to have appointments as well. So we sort of know the level of people coming in. So we're able to use the store uh, for two for, in two ways. So we've got people got almost two balance sheets. We've got a call center balance sheet and an in-store balance sheet. And, and we sort of, then we also combine them. So it's not super clear because how do you Obviously, there's a, there's a cost of call in a sense. So every time because there's there's uh, we could there's cannibalisation, obviously. But we have a rough idea of how much each part of the store is making. We want the store to be profitable, uh, and at the same time, the benefit is we've got this great big branding exercise because we're getting hundreds of thousands of people walk past an incredible store with 180 TV screens out the front that shows these incredible holiday images with the big luxury escapes there. So our brand's being shown to hundreds of thousands of people and we're getting customers who otherwise may not have trusted us are coming in and realizing how good the product is. I've always said travel is super, online. online's hard in general. If I'm selling a, uh, a, glass, a glass online, that's, that's tricky enough, but if there's a problem with the glass, you just get a refund or you get a charge back on your credit card. If you're selling travel online, you've got that issue of trust, but you've also got the fact that if you're, you're A, spending a lot more money because it's a big basket size, and B, if you go into Thailand or Bali or Maldives, you don't want to rock up and have a hotel that's not what the, the jar says it is. So the customer has to really trust Luxury Escapes or Booking.com or Expedia that what we say is what you get. So that takes a lot of trust. If you're giving us $5,000 for a family holiday for the first holiday in four years, you don't want that that stuffed up. So we we have a huge trust hurdle to jump over. It's taken us 
13, 14 years to get the number of people who do trust us to trust us. And we know once somebody's been on one holiday, they love and they'll tell their friends and they come back again. But that first time's hard. And that is easy to do when you're in person versus purely online. Uh, and that's a, we've spent hundreds of million dollars on marketing and advertising over the years. And that, that all contributes, but having that in-person experience is, is really important. Mate, that's that's awesome. That's really really good advice. Hey, um, uh, let, let's finish up. You've been very generous with your time, Adam. I really appreciate it. Always enjoy talking to you. The mountain of knowledge you've got, and, and certainly you you've, you think and read very widely. Um, cast your cast your mind forward for us into twenty twenty four. Again, we're recording this in the middle of October, twenty twenty three. Next year, uh, for your business, for the economy, for the sector in general. Um, what what's what is what is the next eighteen months odd look like uh, for Australia and for the world in your mind? I don't. I think the short answer is I don't know. Uh, I, I think I'd be uh, foolish to, to to guess. There's so many uh, black swan potentials out there that I, I, I I'm moderately bullish, but I'm generally a, a pretty perma bear in terms of where I think the economy will go. Given I just don't think we've had a proper down economic cycle since really 2002. And even that wasn't that deep compared to sort of called the seventies and early eighties. So we haven't had that creative destruction. We haven't had that. The debt's piling up everywhere. US debt is, is ridiculous. So uh, I've got a tinge of negativity, uh, whether that happens sooner or later, I don't, I don't know. In terms of our business, I'm still I'm obviously very optimistic about our business because ultimately it's micro macro. And I think a, a good business should survive all the cycles. Look at the great the Booking.coms, the Amazons, the great businesses haven't been bothered by an economic, economic cycle. So hopefully we can get through whatever sort of the economy throws at us. Uh, we're, we're, one of the main inputs for us is, is exchange rate. And we've seen the Australian dollar drop precipitously. That's not helpful for effectively we're an importer in many ways. So another reason I'm not a big fan of the RBA for, against me for, for, for that. Um, but ultimately, it's really hard to answer that question on a macro basis because I simply don't know. Um, but I'm, I'm, I've always got a bit of a bearish tint uh, to my views, uh, I'm not sure where you sit on this stuff, but but yeah, I just don't think we ever had that recession we needed to have. Yeah, I um, I mean, it's, it's about it's about you know about me. I, I tend to agree. Uh, I'm actually more optimistic than you are, I think, but I do think that we have collectively forgotten what cycles are like, and you kind of already talked to that. But as you say, it's been a long time since a proper recession, um, a very long time, and. A combination of a whole lot of stuff. I think I think people and businesses take risks when they forget that things can be volatile. I have to regularly remind people that ANZ and Westpac almost went to the wall in the early 1990s. Uh, you know, the, the, I'm sure the banks are always so, safe as houses and there's no issues and can't possibly go wrong. Not that I'm predicting they will, but just that 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 those circumstances of actually, you know what, there are, there are times when things get tough. Um, you know, I'd love not to get back to those times, but that'll happen at some point. And the, the more prepared for them we are, uh, the better place will be to get through them. But I, I do worry about things like uh, household government, business indebtedness, for example, as you've already talked to. Uh, easy to take on the debt, easy to talk about lazy balance sheets when when things are going well. Um, there's the old Warren Buffett line about, you know, it's like when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. I, I fear uh, there'll be there'll be some naked swimmers uh, maybe uh, found out in the next 12 months or so. But uh, mate, I'm, also, I'm also, you know, I, I, wanna, I want to believe, uh, to use the X-Files line, uh, I hope maybe somehow we can magically get through the next 12 months and maybe with a shallow recession or, or even, you know, not, not even a recession, just get through it. But uh, there is part of me that thinks if we don't, then we just makes the next time worse as well. So just one of those be careful what you wish for things, I think. 
Adam, you have been exceedingly generous with your time, mate. I'm not surprised Luxury Escapes continues to go from strength to strength. I was very impressed that business is up two and a half fold on pre-COVID, but uh, mate, if you've got a good business. The other thing, by the way, if you're in a small growing business or a larger business now, but if you're a growing business, uh, you can kind of get through some of those some of the cyclical trends, right? You look back at some of the businesses that grew even during the GFC. They didn't grow because the economy didn't shrink. They grew because they were taking share. Uh, they were finding ways to grow and to to, to delight customers. Uh, and maybe at a business level, I suppose, maybe that's the ultimate is if you're, if you're Woolies, if you're CBA, if you're, you know, they, they, you can't avoid cycles. You're, you are the market. If you're a, a little, uh, again, growing, I don't mean to say little in a derogatory way, but if you're, if you're a growing business taking share and doing things differently, uh, you have a much, much better chance of seeing through those sort of cycles because customers still come to you at, you know, for a better solution uh, to, to their problems, which I think is, a, is an important one. So I'm sure Luxury Escapes will continue to do very, very well. Mate, how can people uh, get more Adam Schwab in their lives? We actually have a, a new podcast. I think we, last time I was on, I talked about my old podcast. I've got a new podcast called The Contrarians. Uh, oh, nice. Okay. Obviously, don't quite have your huge listener base just yet, but it's been great fun. I do it with a guy called Adir Schiffman, who's the exec chairman of Catapult, who's a incredible oh, yeah. talent. So we yeah. had a, a good yarn, a bit, a bit like we just had in the last sort of half hour. Um, we actually should get you on at some point. Oh, sure, great, if we can, uh, if we can afford me. you. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's been great fun. So it's good to have a chat sort of once a week on on business stuff and growth stuff and all that sort of fun stuff that people seem to like. I'm sure there's much, much, much more of that on The Contrarians with Adam and Adir. In the meantime, Adam Schwab, thank you for being my guest on The Good Oil. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be on as always. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden and imaged by Link Kelly. Listener.